Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas, and we are here with a special post-election installment of the Codcast on Wednesday morning, the day after. I'm joined by Steve Cazella, the president of the Mass Inc. Polling Group, Lauren Dzinski, Massachusetts correspondent for Politico, and we are trying to make sense of uh, a presidential election that still has people stunned across the country, I think it's fair to say around the world, and then to take a little look at the Massachusetts results, uh, primarily the ballot questions that got most of the attention here. But let's start with the uh, with the story that is just rocketing uh, around the world, uh, the election of Donald Trump as president. Uh, Steve, what what happened? Uh, good question. I mean, I think we're all we're all in a different place than we expected to be this morning. You know, the the polling and the media and pretty much every prognosticator, with perhaps a very few exceptions, saw an overwhelming chance of a Trump victory uh, going into the, to, to the moment when votes started to be counted. You know, you saw right up until the first votes came in, you still had 85, 95, 99 percent chances in some of the models. And of a Clinton victory, you mean? Yes, of mm-hmm. a Clinton victory. Um, and almost right away, those numbers started to go down. Um, almost right away, we saw, you know, the, the chances of a Clinton victory just plummeting. Um, and, and I think that had to do with the state-by-state polls not really picking up what was, what was going on and where Trump's votes were coming from. Lauren, what's your take? um, I I just thought it was fascinating to watch election returns last night, and all of a sudden the New York Times upshot, I think, put Donald Trump at 53% chance of winning, and then, you know, returns were coming in from Florida and other places, and it was just this kind of steady... I think disbelief for most of us. It's it's funny, you know, being a card-carrying member of the media um, and, you know, being from a state like Massachusetts. And I, I spent the day in New Hampshire covering New Hampshire. Um, but to, to see the media and polling be such a part of the narrative of uh, our president-elect's attack on how the system is rigged and now going forward considering the implications for a Trump administration and what that means specifically for the media and how reporters will be able to do their jobs and kind of the understanding of the nuance between, you know, people who are just talking on TV versus people who are actually trying to do their jobs on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think, you know, just kind of on a personal level, that's that's where a lot of my own disbelief comes in. It's not necessarily that I didn't understand Trump supporters. And I think it's not a question of whether or not Trump supporters' concerns are legitimate. It's just, I don't think anyone really realized there were so many people out there who were actually going to vote like this. Yeah, I mean, I think there we are, we have to draw a bit of a distinction between the national polls and the state polls because as we sit here this morning, there's still votes being counted, but it looks as though Clinton actually may win the popular vote. You know, it's a bit unclear, but she may so win. This is going to be like Gore Bush uh, right, over the second again. Right, ti- second time in 16 years that we've had a, a Democrat win the popular vote but, you know, lose the Electoral College. Um, and, and the national polls, you know, on average, the last 538 average showed her winning by just over three. So, you know, that's not at all out of the bounds of normal historical polling errors. It's the fact that all of the states, uh, not all the state polls, but many of the state polls missed, and they all missed in the same direction. You know, they all pretty much overestimated how Clinton would do in the in the battleground polls, and that's why you ended up with 
with Trump uh, pulling off a battle, uh, sort of a shocker in terms of the Electoral College, even while appearing to lose the national popular vote. Right. I mean, I guess this has been written about, you know, for quite a while now that, you know, we're, we're polarized politically, we're becoming polarized geographically. I mean, Democratic votes are kind of piling up in, in places where they aren't necessarily needed, you know, strategically for the Electoral College. So you can have a situation like this where it may not be by much, but it right now appears that slightly more American voters preferred Clinton, but that's that's not how, how our system works. Yeah, and I think you may see, I mean, it's one day after, so this is way too early to be saying this, but you may see that that has something to do with why the polls missed, you know, that, that we are so now geographically polarized and that the polls somehow didn't account for the way that, that, that the geography of voters was distributed. Wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what some of the postmortems, you know, in the next month, two months, six months, if that's one of the factors that's identified as what caused this a part of this miss. One of the things that I was kind of following in the in the final days of this race was comparisons between Trump's potential election and Brexit and how there was there was no way that polling could be wrong on Trump because at least with Brexit, you know, the the way in which polling was conducted in the UK was was so different and in America polling is more accurate and there you know there's a master phone list that you know then uh, you know were able to create more representative samples. Um, one thing that I that I do want to kind of note, and that I think going forward in a Trump administration, and I'm going to keep saying that because it's still strange to say that, um, so many people who came out and supported Trump, I think, felt like their concerns weren't being heard and their needs weren't being met in kind of modern society or at least uh, politically represented. Um, and I'm really curious to see how things actually unfold and how their needs and interests and concerns are not only listened to, but responded to and acted upon over the next four years. I think that's a really compelling narrative for all of us to pay attention to. Well, I mean, he certainly has, you know, a, a, a big agenda in front of him. If you go from, from the campaign rhetoric, he was going to bring manufacturing magically somehow back to the U.S. He was going to threaten to impose huge tariffs on, on imports. I think that would be including even, uh, you know, cars made by American companies in Mexico coming back into this country. I mean, there's just, you know, you could just go on and on with, with the sort of promises that he threw out, sometimes off the cuff, and, in and these speeches that were often, until the end, unscripted and, and sort of, you know, by the seat of his pants. Don't forget that he's going to end the opioid epidemic by building the wall. Right, right. But I do, I, 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 I know that uh, Steve's made the point, and even before we started recording, that, you know, the, 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 the vote distribution doesn't look that different than what we saw in the Obama-Romney race. I mean, this didn't necessarily signal some sea change in the alignment of American voters. But I, I was struck by, I don't know if you guys saw it, the Washington Post put out a map uh, showing uh, counties that flipped from Obama to Trump. And it included uh, a number of counties in this sort of Rust Belt uh, swath that 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 uh, included Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I'm not even sure what the, if the call's been made there yet. But I mean, these were states that people didn't think were in play. They suddenly were last night, and uh, remarkably, you know, for all the talk about kind of angry, uh, you know, less you know non-college white voters, those voters seem to have an easier time supporting Obama four years ago than they did uh, uh, Clinton yesterday. 
Yeah, and I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to suggest that there was not a realignment because I think there probably was in a certain to a certain extent. I mean, you can see, you can see just by looking at the map that there were certain types of counties. You know, rural in many cases, exurban towns that had been, uh, in many cases, places in the Midwest that had been hit hard over the last twenty years and not necessarily shared evenly in the economic gains that the country has seen. Um, what I more meant to say it was was just that there's a danger of reading too much into the numbers. You know, because. Trump's Trump again may come in with fewer voters than either McCain or Romney. You know we don't know exactly because the votes are still being counted, and the and the overall vote count barely shifted. You know so I think there's some danger in um, or there's there's perhaps some imprecision in reading some sort of mandate. You know big mandate into what happened. You know there was definitely some demographic realignment. There certainly was some geographic realignment. Um, but I, I think the surprise of this is perhaps leading people to react too strongly to the strength to, to and overestimate the strength of Trump's victory. That's a great point. Um, I'm also curious to see to what extent President Trump unites the country and you know looks at those numbers and you know sees the fact that like perhaps this isn't necessarily a significant mandate and to what extent does he try and unite the country and move forward to kind of build a bigger coalition or is he just kind of at you know his his floor and ceiling it was enough to win him the election and these are these are his supporters and this is this is what he's sticking with yeah, and I mean, his his speech last night appeared to be a step toward unity. You know, it was very different in tone, I'd say, than a lot of other speeches we'd heard throughout the campaign. Um, and I think the other thing he'll face, you know, to move off polling for a second, if I could, is, is you know, similar to Obama in 2008, there's a lot of other people in Washington waiting to get their digs in on him. You know, he's been in the spotlight now for the last 18 months or so, and he's been saying what he's going to do and you know sort of stepping on a lot of other heads in Washington and those you know those people all have real constitutionally mandated authorities that they, that, that you know they'll be that they were in 2008 and they will be in 27 or 2009 and will be in 2017 waiting to exercise and in some ways looking to thwart some of the things that Donald Trump has promised to do. Yeah, it's it's not like the GOP is operating in any sort of lockstep. So just because they have majorities um, down in D.C., that doesn't mean that we're going to see a party of, of uh, unison and, and unity. Right. I mean, you know, two weeks ago we were still on this storyline that the Republican Party as we knew it had 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 imploded and was going to have to sort of start from square one to put itself back together again. Yeah, and I always thought that was perhaps a bit overblown, but I actually thought it would come together in 2018 because, you know, looking ahead, if we could, the map in 2018 favored Republicans and still favors Republicans just in terms of the number of seats that will be at play in the Senate and the demographics of the electorate, you know, but I thought... Um, when it looked like Clinton was going to win, I thought that the Republican Party would be able to come together around 2018. And it turns out that, you know, they started early. Do you think that this is momentum that we could see carried into 2018? Uh, it's hard to say because I think nobody really has spent enough time or has any idea what a Trump administration is going to be like. You know, right. we don't do at the moment, getting back to mandates for a second, either one of them would have come in as the least, one of the least liked or maybe the least liked Right. Uh, president-elect in history. Neither one of them is trusted by even close to a majority of Americans. They don't see them as honest and trustworthy, um, either one of them. Um, so I think, you know, Trump has real work to do. It's, you know, he was elected with less than less votes than Clinton and is way behind in a lot of his poll numbers. So he's going to face some real uphill struggles. As they say in uh, the Hamilton play, winning is easy, governing is harder. Mm -hmm. 
Sorry, yeah, I had no, to. That one's always good in. for a Hamilton reference. <laughs> Absolutely. I, well, I mean, that's probably never been more appropriate, you know, for any sort of transition period that we're embarking upon than this one uh, for a guy who has been noted has neither uh, political background nor military, which has been the the sort of other other path that non-politicians have taken. Yeah. But uh, he knows more than the generals. Just trust him. Are we gonna? Can we do some singing of a, the Hamilton score? No. Nope. We? <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get to, get to that, maybe that would be the signal that it's time to segue. Uh, Move on uh, to state politics. Yeah, and so let's take. Can we a, get back to politics? Sorry, that's, that's another <laughs> Hamilton reference. All right, I'm done. I'm done. All right, so let's let's uh, get a little closer to home here in Massachusetts, where we did not have big uh, contested races uh, for a statewide office. There weren't a lot of exciting things even happening at the legislative level. It was pretty much status quo there. It was the ballot questions that, w- that was where the action really was. And two of them in particular that got the most attention and, and money spent were uh, question two on charter schools, question four on legalization of marijuana. So uh, the voters have said no to expansion of charter schools, yes to marijuana. Uh, any, any surprises there or what sort of what, what were your your guys' big uh, big takeaways from those two votes? I mean, it seemed like things were kind of trending in the direction of the marijuana legalization passing. And even though there was one, I think, Suffolk poll that came out showing the charter race neck and neck, um, it was kind of becoming more and more clear that, um, you know, it, the, the charter ballot question was going to fall. I think some of that, at least anecdotally speaking, obviously, Steve, who who knows the numbers inside and out, can, can speak a little bit better to that. But... Um, on a, on an anecdotal kind of uh, reporting level, um, the process of trying to break down what exactly question two was and what it meant um, and what it would do to various communities and things like that was a really, really thorny process. And the more that you kind of dug into it, the more questions came up. And I don't think it's surprising that despite Governor Charlie Baker making, you know, multiple passionate appeals to folks in Massachusetts, both in person, knocking doors, um, in on TV ads, on the radio, um, it was still, the, the charter ballot question was still confusing. And to vote no, it would just keep things the way that they are. And I really don't, I mean, clearly, the yes on two folks didn't make a good enough argument to say the status quo is bad and, you know, we need to change it. It's uh, it's true that that the polls, by and large, were confirmed as far as how each of the four questions went. You know, the margins were a bit different, but um, it was it was around Labor Day, just after Labor Day, that we did our first poll that showed question two trailing, and that was the first poll that we'd done for anybody, um, or that had been done publicly or privately that I'd heard about that showed a trailing. You know, look back six or eight months, and you had many polls showing it leading by 25, 30, like 30 points, huge margins. You know. So to see it trailing after Labor Day was quite a surprise. Um, and since then, the margins seem to be just getting worse and worse and worse. But there's a real lesson in that, isn't there, Steve, having to do with ballot questions in general, right? I mean, you don't see a 30-point swing generally from early polls to final elections for candidate races. Right. I mean, that's true. And we've seen it twice now in the last few years in Massachusetts. The bottle bill was another thing. The mm-hmm. the, the ballot question back um, in 2014 proposing to expand the bottle bill Early polling showed that leading, you know, by even bigger margins than the charter question, and it lost by even bigger margins than the charter question. So, 
Um, you know, the thing about ballot questions is that people don't have partisan cues, which you just alluded to. It's not like I'm a Democrat, so I sort of know how I should vote because it says D right here on the ballot. Until you convince me otherwise, that's my default. Right, exactly. This, this you know, voters have to figure out based on whatever sources of information they consume how they should vote, um, you know, how they should vote on each of the questions. And this charter thing in particular has has been confusing sort of on that partisan, you know, question. Uh, for some time now, uh, you know, it's divided Democrats. Uh, it's you know, is is to is is charter uh, charter schools is that a, a left leaning left or leaning right type position? It certainly has mm-hmm. been sort of the darling of the Pioneer Institute of free market thinkers and uh, think tanks and and uh, and some uh, funders, but you know, it has historically had some backing from the civil rights community. President Obama, as we heard about, to sort of controversial end with this ad. <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah. Right. I mean, his secretaries of education. So it, it, it was confusing. But then uh, you guys at the Massing Polling Group had a poll come out, I think, in mid-October or so, that I think really was sort of, sort of told the story of the turn in this race, Steve, which had to do with this real emerging partisan divide on the question. Right, and that's true. It, it didn't start off a partisan issue. You know, we've been polling on charter schools for a while. And, you know, up until September, maybe a bit earlier than that, we, we never saw really a big partisan split. You know, Democrats supported the idea, Republicans, independents, you know. Um, and then in September and October, uh, especially in October, we saw these very large splits where Democrats were opposed to the idea of expand, of lifting the cap as described in question two and Republicans were for it. I think though that um, e- there was even some movement after that because when you look at the map, I mean, this was a wipeout. This was a, right. you know, border to border, top to bottom, left to right wipeout. You know, the uh, when you look town by town, the yes side carried maybe 12. I mean, I haven't counted, but no more than maybe 15 towns across Massachusetts. Um, so this wasn't just about party. This was about, you know, then pretty much across the state, there was a lot of persuasion that this was just not something that we wanted to do. Yeah, I don't think that, I I mean, my feeling is that the proponents of this just sort of, sort of went walking, you know, sort of into a buzzsaw that they never saw coming. Uh, I mean, obviously, you don't decide to take somebody to the ballot if you don't think you can win it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to lose by this, um, this margin really must have them uh, you know, shaking their heads. And I think the folks on the other side, conversely, uh, I talked, you know, yesterday to the mayor of Northampton out in Western Mass. And his reaction, you know, there are a lot of concerns and grievances around school funding that, you know, even go way beyond the charter school issue that that uh, municipal leaders felt haven't been addressed. So when charter schools was going to be put on the ballot, you know, his reaction was, sure, let's have that conversation, but we're going to have a much broader one that's going to raise a lot of questions that are really not what the proponents are trying to have this thing be about. Uh, and so they really shifted this to, uh, I think, raising a lot of questions about whether we were funding our schools adequately enough. Uh, so, you know, I kind of came away with it with a feeling that uh, the proponents, you know, for the message to them is be careful what you wish for. They said, let's have a big statewide uh, discussion on schools. And and I think the the state senate when they they basically tried to grapple with education funding and charters earlier this year I think it was February and that fight was so problematic and so fraught it was it was you know uh, hearkening back to I think when they tried to do it back in, I think it was 2014 um, but 
you know, the Senate worked really hard to basically create a compromise bill because Senate President Stan Rosenberg, um, you know, has, has basically made it clear that he's uncomfortable with the process of legislating through ballot questions because as we've seen, you know, the way that the ballot questions are written, it's, it's you know, dealing with, it's painting with extremely broad strokes. The Senate does a bill and then the House basically just says it's dead on arrival and they're, you know, they're not going to take it up. And I think for a lot of people looking at how our state government works and how our state government functions and specifically our legislature, with an issue like education and education funding and the funding formula with the schools, this is an issue that is so complicated and is so fraught, but they might not necessarily take it up unless they have to. And so that's why I think we're going we're going to see fiddling and tweaking with the marijuana law, which was just passed, um, which a lot of people have expressed concerns specifically with, you know, distracted driving and, and issues of enforcement and things like that. We're going to see tweaks and adjustments to that to make sure that it is palatable to everyone. But I think in terms of resolving the issues that really this campaign dredged up with question two it's going to take a while for the state to even go back to it. Everyone is licking their wounds in terms of, you know, this fight um, and the issues that it brought up. But this is, these are these are really big issues. And this was another try at grappling with charters and education funding. And there's, there's no end in sight in terms of this discussion. Yeah, and I think you're right about usually, you know, there are outside forces on the legislature that compel it to take action. I mean, mm-hmm. if you go back to the Ed Reform Act itself in 1993, there was a, a lawsuit pending it before the Supreme Judicial Court. In 2010, they they took a big step with the lure of uh, race to the top money from the Fed. So they they it, it's true. I mean, the legislature's inclination is to not not take big moves that could upset constituencies or get you know get somebody's nose out of joint until they're forced to. Uh, I think this is really the first time that we've had. A big education thing on the ballot, and and as you say, it proved to be really complicated, hard to have that conversation over over such complicated issues. And, and let's just talk briefly. So the marijuana issue, which we haven't given a lot of attention to, passed you know by a healthy margin, pretty pretty much in in line with what the polls were showing. Um, to the point about the about the legislature taking not taking action, I think Senate President Rosenberg, you know, if anybody you know looks a little bit good in this whole. Uh, race on Beacon Hill, uh, I mean, he sort of came out, you know, a winner on both the ballot questions, mm-hmm, just having mm-hmm. opposed the charter thing. And he, in the end, endorsed the marijuana question. But even before he made that full endorsement, he was hinting at the idea that, you know, whether I'm really that keen on it, I think the voters are going to pass it. I think the more responsible thing would probably have been for us to take it up in the legislature. Now they're talking about sort of going back after the fact uh, to do that. So, you know, he was a little vindicated by that. But let's just talk a little bit about sort of the other political players. Uh, uh, Governor Baker, certainly, first and foremost, who, uh, you know, sort of took a double hit in terms of being really out there on, on the two most prominent ballot questions, losing on, on both of them. Uh, is, this, uh, is this a really bad day for him? Or, or what's, what, what's going to be the fallout for him politically? Perhaps he's just wearing a cropped jacket today because he does not have any coattails. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, he, he put his political capital into promoting these two ballot questions um, or promoting one 
being against the other. Uh, these are obviously stances that he can kind of go out and defend, even though he lost it. You know, he was he was in it for the kids, and you know, he's concerned about you know what's going to happen as you know pot shops proliferate throughout the Commonwealth. Um, but this is you know look at and then also looking at you know Trump winning the presidency. Like the there are issues that. Governor Charlie Baker is going to have to grapple with. And this is kind of a complicated next two years that he's about to enter in terms of what voters in Massachusetts say that they want and what they're looking for from their elected officials. Um, and also looking at the coalitions of people that he built, you know, both in terms of people who supported him with charters and people who were opposing um, the marijuana legalization. Um, you know, this is Charlie Baker has some noodling to do and um, to go out there and kind of boost these issues that are important to him and and how he goes about doing that. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to see what's the next issue, if there are any, that Charlie Baker does decide to get up into a 30 minute or a 30 second TV spot where he's speaking directly to voters from his living room. I think it's a reasonable question whether there are any coattails in Massachusetts. You know, you think back over the last couple of years and you've had, um, you know, predating Charlie Baker a bit, but you had many high profile leaders and uh, Mayor Walsh included supporting the Olympics, you know, and that the voters basically said they didn't want that. You had the governor supporting uh, charter schools and the voters pretty resoundingly saying they didn't want that. Even Walls saying, we like Charlie Baker, we like what he's doing, we think he's a good guy. You look at marijuana and you had almost all of the political forces, not all of them, but many of them uh, lined up against that. And the voters said, we do want that. So um, there is, a, I think it's, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask what influence, what are, who are voters listening to? Mm -hmm. You know, or do they feel like the leaders that, that are representing them in Massachusetts right now really understand what they want? Maybe it has something to do with the fact that the majority of Massachusetts voters are unenrolled. You know, because they don't necessarily have party affiliation, it, it kind of lends itself to even though there is an understanding that this is a democratic state, um, people here, maybe not as much as in New Hampshire, you know, don't necessarily want to be told what to do and how to think. And they, you know, they like certain leaders, but they're not necessarily going to be in lockstep with what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I'd, um, probably disagree with that slightly only because I, I think um, party affiliation is deeper than just registration. That's mm -hmm. my, my view on that. Um, but I think there's undeniably um, the, the second part of what you said is correct, which is that the voters seem not to be the, all that influenced in many cases by what leaders, even leaders that they approve of, are saying about issues that, they, that, they're, that they're following along. Right. But, but I think the, the, the sort of corollary of that could be that the, those leaders are not going to be particularly held responsible if they you know, land on the sort of wrong side or the losing side of a question, right? Yeah, so, and that seems to be true, too. I mean, Walsh right. hasn't been. He still has, you know, 70-plus, 60-plus exactly. percent favorables, depending on the poll. Right. You know, Baker, and, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll see the same thing in a couple months. We'll see him, I'm guessing, with very high numbers right, also. Right, right. I mean, I don't think anybody is saying, oh, he got, you know, he got, you know, really pummeled on the charter thing, lost on the marijuana thing. You know, who's running against him? This guy's ready to be taken down. I mean, that's not... The narrative. I mean, I actually Absolutely. saw. I think in the Globe today, Frank Phillips had sort of a story saying this, there could be sort of a silver lining that Baker, through the charter thing, kind of has you know again in his uh, you know way of trying to sort of reach beyond the, the Republican base. You know, has reached into minority communities or other constituencies. I'm not sure how 
how far that, that takes him in a governor's race. But he, he was trying to sort of spin out an idea that, uh, or a line of thinking that, that, that even some of the alliances he made in these losing efforts, you know, might, might uh, uh, be helpful in, in, to some degree in a re-election race. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like playing checkers, or playing chess when everyone else is playing chess. Yeah, and that does start yeah. right, that starts not right now, but pretty soon, you know, re-election um, season first for Marty Walsh, then for Charlie Baker over the next couple of years. Um, I think part of the question also, in addition to how people view his support of these particular ballot questions, is um, how the narrative unwinds as far as what he did with Trump, you know, and the presidential election in general, which was nothing. Right, you know? right. And that could either be viewed positively, like he didn't support Donald Trump, or it could be viewed negatively, like he didn't work against Donald Trump. So I think right. that... I mean, I almost thought he'd be on safer ground that. if Clinton had won. Uh, I mean, nobody really thought he was going to rush to endorse her. Right. You know, he certainly went a little farther than other Republican governors by not endorsing Trump. I think he would have been in fine shape to have good dealings with a with a with a Clinton administration. I have to wonder if there's going to be any retribution from a Trump administration toward Republican Governor Charlie Baker for his obviously very vocal stance against Donald Trump. Yeah, and there's a long list of people that would fit that description. Um, so he has to get in line, maybe, or take numbers. <laughs> but I Trump's mean, not like, a guy who kind of plays like that, Lauren. I mean, no, like no, of he course takes, not. You know, he's a and and not and not that his approval, not that Charlie Baker's approval ratings are at all enviable by someone else who perhaps doesn't have as high uh, uh, support from voters. Right. Sorry, I'm tired. I worked 22 hours yesterday. What'd you do for the other two? I mean, that's there's no excuse there. <laughs> well, I think that uh, we will we will probably wrap it up on that on that note. But I do want to mention, speaking of of uh, looking ahead, uh, I know most people are ready to put uh, electioneering and politics aside for a while. So we will let you do that for exactly a week. And, uh, just one week. And one week from today, I'll just mention that the uh, Massing Polling Group and Politico are co-sponsoring. Uh, a, a discussion called "The Road Ahead to 2018," which will include uh, more more talk about about uh, Charlie Baker, the governor's race, and uh, and the political landscape going forward in Massachusetts. It's next Wednesday at 5:30 p.m. Ned Devine's at Faneuil Hall. Uh, check on the uh, Commonwealth uh, Magazine website for more information. I think if you look uh, or subscribe to. Uh, the playbook. You'll be uh, perhaps reminded of that uh, every single day, every day between now and then. Uh, so uh, I want to thank Steve Cazella, Lauren Dzinski, our sleep-deprived producer Lear Johansson, and Michael Jonas at Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you.